Well, as we've already witnessed this morning uh, with the lighting of the, the candle, uh, we are in a new season and we're also entering a new uh, sermon series here uh, for Advent. This is the season the church readies uh, ourselves. We, we prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus at Christmas and so looking at Advent past, but also we renew our efforts in this season uh, as we prepare for Christ's second coming as we look to whenever uh, that time is. And instead of saying the future, I, I'd like to think about this as the present, as God prepares us with each uh, particular day. We've heard words like coming, and we've heard words like preparing uh, to talk about the season. But let me offer one additional word for us to have in mind as part of our Advent lexicon. Uh, the word waiting, a word that shows up in our text this morning in, in verse 7. Of course, this might be the most challenging word of the bunch. Last Tuesday, I was out in front of uh, Papa Murphy's uh, getting my uh, Tuesday uh, pizza deal, and I had to stand on a big long line. I remember as I stood there, uh, an older fellow uh, came walking forward. He was looking at the uh, restaurant, and as we were just waiting to go in, he he was kind of sizing things up. And you could tell uh, by the look on his face that he was coming to the realization that he was going to have to join uh, the line. And so he started to make his way back to a couple people behind me, and I overheard him uh, serve up a recollection from his days of serving in the Navy. Uh, he was an older fellow. He said, I was in the Navy. Uh, I don't know. That must have been uh, some time ago. He said there was an expression that captured the moment uh, that he found himself in at that, that point. And I thought this is a, quite an Advent statement to be making here. He said in the Navy they had an expression that was, hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. And he was having here in front of Papa Murphy's a hurry-up-and-wait experience. His early quick action was now being replaced by an indefinite period of waiting. But of course, he was far more patient than the crowd I saw in front of GameStop in the mall early Friday morning. I think if uh, we'd been reading some holiday books at home, and one of them is this Lama Lama book, um, if I were to describe what I saw in front of GameStop when we talk about waiting, that would be holodrama, is what Lama Lama calls it. My hope for us in the coming weeks is that we as a, a church and as a community, and quite frankly, anybody who might be participating with us in worship who may not be part of a Christian community, uh, but who may be joining us here during this season, uh, we welcome you into this community. But for all of us, whoever might be hearing uh, God's word this morning, that we wouldn't resign ourselves to inactivity like a wait out in front of a pizza place, or even busying ourselves with self, self or senseless battles like what I saw in front of GameStop as they fought for the latest computer gadget. Uh, but instead, that we might discover together uh, something that Pope Francis tweeted in 2014, where he said this about Advent. He said, Advent increases our hope, a hope which does not disappoint. The Lord never lets us down. I think Paul would agree uh, with that sentiment, and we see that here in this text. As he begins the text with these words, grace to you. That's the first words of Advent for us here in this season, and it's Paul's words uh, early on in 1 Corinthians to his hearers. But here grace is coupled with the word peace, and it forms an expression that is quintessential Paul. In the traditional first century Greco-Roman letters, uh, the greetings would oftentimes employ the word karain, uh, which is a word that's uh, translated oftentimes greetings or means good wishes. We actually have one of the books of the New Testament follows this custom. If you look at the book of James, 
uh, you'll actually see where it says greetings. So it's following that tradition of that time in a letter uh, to use that word again, karain. But Paul does something unique here and also in some of his other letters. What he does is he morphs the word karain into a word that sounds very much similar, the word charis, which is the word that we translate as grace. And of course, this isn't done for style points. He's not trying to be a creative writer here, uh, but rather it's aligned with a the theological emphasis uh, that's seen throughout his letters. But maybe more importantly here, and like all good theology, there's a personal component to it. It also speaks to something that he understood personally. If you remember uh, what he writes uh, when he talks about the thorn in the flesh at one point in one of his Corinthian letters, he says this about it. He says, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. So returning to the greeting of this letter, again, hearing something that's very personal to Paul, uh, but also something so core to his theology, he wasn't completely being unconventional either. As, he, as we see here, he'll combine grace uh, with the traditional Semitic greeting of shalom, or what we translate as peace, or total well-being. And here we should note that the coupling of grace and peace, or again in the language here, charis and shalom, uh, is not being done to placate a diverse audience of Gentile and Jewish uh, Christians, uh, but rather to communicate a key theme in the Christian life. As Gordon Fee has observed uh, here that one flows from the other, that we know peace because we have experienced or been the recipients of God's grace. And because of this, scholar C.K. Barrett uh, will observe here that this greeting actually functions as a prayer. And that prayer is that the recipients would come to know the grace of God in which they already stand and the peace that they already enjoy. That sounds nice. That sounds pleasant. But it's a powerful sentiment. And it's sent to an audience that needs to hear this, both then and now. When we read a, a letter like 1 Corinthians or any one of the epistles, we need to be reminded that we're not reading a Hallmark card. These are not hollow platitudes. The audience to which Paul is writing at this moment in Corinth is in a tough, tough spot. This Christian community is in danger of becoming a lifeless bunch. The fruit of their efforts is a far cry from what Paul imagines for them in the gospel those benefits that God provides for them. And as we read through 1 Corinthians, if we go even further than our text and we read through the rest of this letter, we begin to quickly see just how immense those problems were for them. In chapter 1, we'll read about quarrels and divisions that exist, that actually factions are being formed, some claiming to be with Paul, some claiming to be with Apollos, some even claiming to be with Christ in all this, others saying that they're with Cephas. Of course, later in that chapter, we recognize, as Paul notes, that they have missed the point of the cross, or in Paul's words, they've emptied it of its power. And not only do they miss the cross, they miss the gospel, and then they also miss Jesus and all that. In chapters 5 and 6, there's a misunderstanding about Christian freedom, and there's actually a celebration of immorality that's happening in this congregation. They're boasting about a, a woman in their congregation who is having an affair or living with her stepson. And they're seeing that as a badge of honor uh, for them. Also in chapter 6, we, we see that there's lawsuits uh, between believers. And Paul's like, what, what are you doing here? And I, 
I think we might, in our day and age, say, well, maybe it's a justified lawsuit. Maybe something actually happened that needed to be settled that way. But in that day, which is also very common in our own day, that lawsuits tend to be brought by those who can afford legal counsel. And so what we might have here, and probably very realistically here, is we have the richer members of this congregation dragging the poor members before a judge and trying to seek legal action because they have the means to hire the legal counsel, but they also have the means to bribe uh, the judges and magistrates here. And that's always been a challenge in every age. Um, and here, that's probably what's happened. It's an abuse of power. We see in chapters 8 through 10 that there's an issue related to food that's sacrificed to idols and this disagreement that arises there. It means that there is a confusion about what all that means theologically and, and how do we exercise our personal freedom. There's abuses in chapters 11 and 14 when it comes to worship. Just imagine uh, communal or personal disagreements and problems. They'll show up in worship. They do in our congregation. They do in every congregation. It doesn't become, this space doesn't become immune to the challenges we face when we're not inside this space. And it goes on and on. Chapter 12, there's issues about spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, there's a need to better understand what love is. And also in chapter 15, we see that there's questions about Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of the body. Each highlighted because in one way or another, each was misunderstood, misapplied, or both. That's quite a list of correctives. That's quite a list for a letter to have that many issues being addressed about one congregation. And to borrow a title from Kenda Creasy Dean, uh, we might assume here that the church at Corinth sounds almost Christian. But despite their failings, grace still abounds. It's still the first word of our text from the Apostle. And we hear this idea of grace abounding even amidst the struggle throughout this morning's reading. Paul will identify the source of that grace. He'll say in verse 3 that it doesn't come by the church's own action. Whatever efforts the church might see, whatever personal talents or abilities they might recognize within themselves, that those did not come about because of their own actions, but rather that grace finds its origin in God. And he doubles down on that in verse 4 as well. He notes that expressions found in the church, particularly in its life together, ones in which the Corinthians were priding themselves on and as such would verge on the point of abuse, such things as speech and knowledge like we hear in verse 5 or spiritual gifts in verse 7. These are not, again, marks of personal achievement, but better understood as God's gracious gifts to the church. And God doesn't stop there but rather, as we hear in verse 8, that God will strengthen them to the end. The folks in Corinth hadn't arrived yet. They indeed need to be a people that were waiting, and we haven't arrived yet either. But yet God still provides for us. God keeps going and keeps going. And Paul also points out here that the literal being in fellowship with Jesus Christ, to be the church, is by virtue of God's own action. What in verse 9 he clearly names, that according to God's faithfulness. The temptation is to make it about me. Corinth reflected a whole community of persons making it about themselves. It's about grace. And so returning to Paul's initial word of grace, in light of the church's problems, he very easily could have dropped the boom on them. 
He could have very easily gone very contentious with them from the get-go. And we know Paul can bring it. We know from Paul's history, what we read in the New Testament, that he could bring it. Whether that's this congregation, as we'll see further on in 1 Corinthians if we keep reading, or individuals like in Galatians 2 where he takes on Peter, or even in Acts 15 where he takes on Barnabas and John Mark, we know that Paul can bring it. We know that he doesn't try to be passive-aggressive. He names it. Paul was big time like that. But grace and peace are what he hopes for this community. And so instead of dropping the boom, Paul drops blessing on them in verse 3. He offers them a promising word. For those who find themselves mired in misunderstanding, abuses, and factions, he says, these are not only not the first word, they're not the final word either. One of my favorite musical artists uh, is Michael David Rosenberg. Uh, he's popularly known as Passenger. Uh, probably, probably actually not one of my favorite, probably my favorite, uh, just getting past Frank Sinatra on my list for my favorite artist. He has a song that calls Things You've Never Done. And the song speaks to experience of one's life choices and how those life choices have resulted in the loss of relationship and particularly the loss of one that is so beloved. Passenger sings this uh, in the chorus of that, that song. He says, you've blown out all your candles one by one and you curse yourself for things you've never done. With more than 6 million subscribers to his YouTube channel, I imagine that there's quite a few people who have lived this experience and this music forms their uh, personal biography. Well, on this first Sunday of Advent, the season when the church uh, worship services begin with the lighting of a candle, a symbolic reminder once more of, of God's light piercing the darkness, of that beacon of hope, and a reminder that even when we have blown out all our candles one by one, that there's one candle that remains lit, that we recognize that God's grace is not extinguished. It can't be blown out. So where does that leave us in this season? Where does it leave Jesus' followers who have find themselves here living a couple thousand years removed from Jesus' first coming and now living with an undisclosed number of days before Jesus comes again. Does this text have anything to say to us about our waiting? Well, as tempting as it is to make the Christian life all about me, to make it all about my experience, I'm reminded once more in our text that when it comes to Advent preparation, we are made ready, get ready for this, by God. We're made ready by God. Because of God's gracious action, we hear in verse 7 that we're not lacking in any spiritual gifts as we wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word translated gifts here uh, will also show up later in the book, as well as in Paul's other writings. But listen carefully to the word. It's the word that we use to talk about charismatics, charisma. You hear in the start of that word, charis, grace. These are grace gifts. These are things that are bestowed on the church that are given to us. They're divinely bestowed gifts. They're given to us so that the church can be helped in our waiting, and they come from God. The second thing we hear also in verse 8 is, God will also strengthen you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
but strengthen for what exactly, we might ask? Well, there's a line from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that gets quoted quite often, and I'll add to that long list of times Dietrich Bonhoeffer has been quoted. When he writes this, when Christ calls a man, and I'll just extend that too, when Christ calls a person, he bids them to come and die. The death here is a death to self. It's a realization that life is not about me. And so our calling is to a life of faithful obedience. We're called to a life where we experience a dying to sin. We are called to willingly suffer for the sake of others, place our neighbor ahead of ourselves. It sounds kind of like Jesus when you put those three together. Doesn't that sound like the life of Jesus in the Gospels? Faithful, faithfully obedient, dying to sin, willingly suffering for the sake of others. And this way of living is contrary to my nature, contrary to my desire. But God strengthens us to live in this way. God moves in us through a spirit that each day we might move closer and closer to that one day when we'll be found blameless. And blameless here, I might note here, just as I had a little fun here looking at this word this, this past week, the word blameless there, same word shows up in Colossians chapter 1. I won't read that because we just did a series on Colossians. But check out verse 22 of Colossians 1 to recognize what we're heading towards. Grace abounds now, then, and always. Well, throughout this season of Advent's uh, I've decided that I'm going to be reading through Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And so I'm going to close here uh, drawing on an illustration from, from Dickens uh, that I think is helpful for us to recognize uh, what is at play here in our preparations for Advent. But you'll hear these throughout the season. If you're wondering, why is he quoting Dickens or why is he citing Dickens so much? That's why. I'm reading Charles Dickens throughout the season. Kind of wonder why that's called an Advent Carol, too. Hmm. Well, hardly blame is the first person one encounters in Dickens' uh, work, A Christmas Carol, is a character named Jacob Marley. But he isn't alive. In fact, the opening words of that book uh, begin with these famous lines, Marley was dead to begin with. <laughs> Marley is dead to begin with. That's how the book begins. Let's start with a cheery introduction. Goes on to say, there's no doubt at all about that. And of course, lines that followed uh, our confirmation of his death. There's these prominent figures that are listed as having signed off on the death certificate. They, they said for sure we know that he is dead, and one of those is the central character, Ebenezer Scrooge himself. And in case there was any question whether or not Marley somehow had survived in all this, that he actually was alive, the narrator will add these words, old Marley was as dead as a doornail. And then we'll actually go on to repeat that one more time. So the point that we recognize early on is Marley is, in fact, dead. If you don't get through the first page or two of A Christmas Carol and not know that Marley's dead, you've missed the story. Of course, one suspects, as you read through A Christmas Carol, that Marley may not be the only character who is deceased. In fact, at least in spirit and perhaps body soon enough, this is shaping up to be a tale of Scrooge's own demise. And that's how that first stave of A Christmas Carol lets us into, lets us see that. With disdain for Christmas and anyone who might bring good tidings, including his nephew, 
a group of carolers, a pair taking up a collection for the poor, uh, and not so subtle cruelty to his own clerk, it seems that Scrooge is well on his way to join the damned. But a ghost visits him, that being the tortured ghost of his late business partner, Jacob Marley. And it is Marley here who will hint at a hope-filled possibility of an altogether different future for Scrooge, warning him that without their visits, these spirits that are to come to visit him during the night, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Marley's carrying heavy chains and carrying a burden through eternity. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Friends, the church at Corinth and perhaps some of us have tread a path that should be shunned. And like Scrooge, we need a spirit to help us see a new way forward, a hope-filled future, to see what Jesus called that narrow and hard road that leads to life. And so the first line we might sing in this season of Advent, that first line that we might sing as part of our Advent carol after we sing those words of Revelation, come, is this, God By your grace, help me be ready for today so that I'll be ready for the day when Jesus returns. May it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this day for your great love for us. And that love has found its expression, and it literally expresses your grace, a grace that calls us to a place in the season where we wait, where we prepare, it literally helps us in the waiting. It readies us. It helps us in the preparing. It builds us up and strengthens us for what is to come. So Lord, we pray as your disciples that you would continue that good work in our hearts and our lives, that we truly will be presented as blameless, as you have promised in your word, and as you continue to write, in our hearts, and our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.